Interview number 48, Eschalt Harker, Stories of Welsh History and the Land of Wales. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. I am Brother Wolf, and I am so thrilled that you have found your way here with us right now, that you have joined us. No matter how you have gotten here, I want you to know that I am so, mm, so grateful that you have come to this place, because this is the place where we hold storytelling up up into the light, we polish off the dusty surfaces, we give a gleam to that old rusty diamond that is storytelling, and we examine every single edge, every single facet. I have a treat for you because I have with me right now a Welsh storyteller. I mean, think about it. There are storytellers all over the world, but I got a Welsh one, and I'm really excited about that. Um, her name is Ethach Harker. She's been telling stories since 96. She's trained as an actress and has told stories at the Beyond the Borders Storytelling Festival in Wales on several occasions. She also took part in a Rough Guide to Wales, um, a storytelling tourist program. Sometimes I feel like I bring some of these old elders on, and then sometimes I want to bring someone who's still, I wouldn't say they're new, they know their stuff. They are on their way, and they are traveling this road. And sometimes it's helpful to bring someone on who is who who is still learning the ropes, still coming along. And I really appreciate you coming on the show, Essek. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So do you have a story you could share with us? I've got a very short story. It's called, I call it the bilingual cat. And being a Welsh storyteller, I'm a Welsh-speaking storyteller, and I work sometimes bilingually. Um, sometimes I tell stories in Welsh to non-Welsh speakers, which is very interesting, and I translate as I go along. But this story, well, it can speak for itself. There was once a cat, and she was sitting with her kittens, and she was uh, nursing them and feeding them and licking them clean and generally looking after them when along came a big dog. And the dog, he looked at the cat, and he began to growl at the cat. And the cat, she stood up. She arched her back. The hairs on the back of her head lifted up. She looked at that dog and she said, <coughs> The dog turned and fled. The cat sat herself down. She smoothed down her fur and she looked at her little kittens and she said, There you are, my little ones. You see how important it is to have two languages. And you first heard this as a traditional Welsh tale? No, it's not a traditional Welsh tale. I heard it from a storyteller who heard it from another storyteller, and I phoned up one of them and asked where he'd heard it, and he'd heard it from somebody else, so I don't know where it comes from. I've heard it once as uh, the ending line is, and that's why it's important to know a foreign language. Yeah, well, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, in Wales, we, um, Wales is our first language, and uh, everybody speaks English. Most people speak English in a more, how can I put it, uh, 
not exactly a more fluent way, but we have our education in English, so there are differences in our mastery of the two languages, but the Welsh language is often the one that's closest to the heart. Can you tell the story in Welsh? That story. Uh, could do, yes. <laughs> you want me to tell the same story in Welsh? Okay. In wife, a roedd yn a gath. Ac roedd y gath yn eistedd gyda'i charfod bach, ac yn ei mwytho nhw, ac yn ei llyfyn nhw'n lan. Ac yn sydyn daeth ci mawr heibio. Daeth y ci fyny at y gath, edrychodd ar y gath, a dechreuodd chwrni yn ffyrni, gysafodd y gath i fyny. Cododd ei chefn yn un cylch, cododd y bleu ar ei gwar i fyny. Edrychodd y gath ar y ci, a dywedodd. Trodd y ci a redodd i ffwr. Esteddodd y gath i lawr, gosododd ei bleu yn ei lle unwaith eto, a dwedodd wrth y caffod bach, da chi'n gweld yn plant bach i. That is beautiful to listen to. And the cool thing about it is in that story, there's that animal noise. You know, you can kind of follow, and it's very cool. So are you fluent in both, in both? I mean, clearly English, but are you fluent in Welsh? Yes, I am fluent in Welsh, but I don't have the education that I have in English. In fact, I've had no education in Welsh at all. And so it does make a difference. There are situations when I can, you know, lose the thread of the conversation, um, for instance, a, a discussion amongst people who are maybe talking about a particular specialized subject which I don't know a lot about or something like that. And also I find sometimes when I'm telling a story, particularly if I want to create something a little bit more formal, then it's a little difficult because I don't have the same grasp of you know, grammatical structures and subtleties of language. And it's harder to do that in Welsh. Is this just a matter of sitting down with a book of Welsh grammar, or is this also the difference between street Welsh and higher... How do, I, do I say Wales or Welsh? Wales is the country, Welsh is the language. Yeah, um, I think it's both of those things, really. Um, it would be good to do a course, you know, and there are courses for people who have a, a fluency of spoken Welsh, but you know who don't know really how to write Welsh, for instance, as well, which is diff- different. Um, so it's partly that. Yeah, I forgot what the other thing was that you suggested. <laughs> well, higher education and also yeah. the difference between street Welsh and... There's a big difference between conversational spoken Welsh, street Welsh, if you like, um, or family Welsh, you know, and Welsh that you write. It's more of a difference, I think, than the difference in English. And when people write Welsh, we tend to use more, more formal structures that we don't use in speech. When you're telling a story... Do you prepare, are there sometimes in, in, the, in the Welsh you're using in a story, are there sometimes when you have to go and study a particular way of saying something or study a set of words? Yes, and again, it depends what the, what the nature of the story is, you know, what kind of context I'm telling, telling it in as well, how formally structured it is, how carefully structured it is. But yes, sometimes I have to go and, and look up words, you know, check out, the grammatical patterns in Welsh are very different from English, so the, the words can change depending on where they come in the sentence. And there are lots of complex rules that I don't know about when you mu- the letters mutate. You change the initial letters of words, and you have to know when to do that. And generally, it's instinctive. You just know that that's how you say it. But you know, when you're, when you're consciously trying to construct something, then it's not always, you're not always very sure exactly how it's supposed to be. So I have to check those things out. I was reading one of the signs. We are currently participants, or I should say you are a participant, I'm a presenter, at the Smithsonian Folk Festival in 2009 on the uh, the mall in Washington, D.C. 
And I was reading some of the signs uh, at the whales section of the festival, and one of the signs described the Welsh language as the perfect way to express poetry and storytelling. Do you think this is true? That I've heard other people who speak other languages talk about the frustration of expressing things in English. Do you find it sometimes easier to express certain ideas in Welsh? No, because um, for me, ideas is precisely the area where Welsh gets difficult <laughs> because it's easier for me to express ideas in English because I have a better mastery of the language. It's easy for me to tell stories in Welsh to children, for instance, because my Welsh is family Welsh, it's domestic Welsh, it's the Welsh that I spoke at home with my parents when I was a child. And so it's particularly delightful if I'm working in North Wales, which is where my family comes from, and I go into a school and I know that I can express myself exactly the way I would naturally at home and the children will you know, know exactly what I mean because we have the same dialect, the same use of words. Um, in South Wales I have to be a bit conscious of some words that I pronounce differently or there are even differences in the vocabulary that you know, the children wouldn't know what I was talking about. So ideas are more difficult for me. That's where it gets tricky. Hi, I'm Anne Glover, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Okay, now do I go? Okay, monkey, yeah, go ahead, your turn. Okay, hi. Um, no, wait a second. Um, wait, can we start over, because I forgot if I... No, monkey, just say hi, this is monkey. Hi, but Anne, what, they don't know me. No, but th that's why you're introducing yourself. Hi, this is monkey. No, I'm monkey. I know, I'm just <laughs> telling you what to say. Hi, I'm monkey. And this is, you're listening to... And you're, but what if they're not listening anymore? They're listening, monkey. Just talk to them. Um, okay, you're listening to the art of storytelling, but Anne, Anne... What, monkey? You say with Brother Wolf, come on. Oh, yeah, um, but why is he called Brother Wolf? It's his name. Well, his name's Eric, but he's calling himself Brother Wolf. Why don't we just say with Eric Wolf? Well, you can say that, Monkey. Okay, hi. This is Monkey, and you're listening to Eric. No, but then they'll think I'm Eric. No, they won't, Monkey. They really won't. Okay, hi. This is Monkey. Um, and... You've got to wrap it up, Monkey. Wrap what up? End. We're running out of time. Okay, hi. This is Monkey, and, um, um, you're listening to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Wolf. Whoa, Eric, is that it? That's it, monkey. Well done. Do you find that storytelling is an effective way of communicating the passion and the desire to speak Welsh? Is, is there right now a struggle going on in Wales about continuing the use of the language? And as a storyteller who can speak Welsh, are you then taking part in that struggle? Yeah, I think by virtue of doing it in Welsh, it's, it's a very powerful tool because um, storytelling appeals to the imagination. It doesn't appeal to the rational mind. And people who are learning Welsh, you know, normally if they're going to Welsh lessons, they're struggling to get things right. They're struggling to understand things. When they're listening to stories, they're not struggling. They just switch off and listen. And they understand ever, so much, ever such a lot more than they think they're going to understand. So I think it's a very effective medium, actually, for learning Welsh, 
people learn the language in the way that children learn the language just by listening to something that's interesting and um, you know following it without having to think about it particularly there's actually a, a group on the west coast of the United States that uses storytelling as a part of teaching second languages uh, and I keep meaning to get them on but let's talk about the Welsh tradition of storytelling Wales is supposed to have some various stories and poems that are passed down through history. Can you just talk in general about some of these pieces? Well, there's a very old tradition of written literature in Wales. It's one of the oldest in Europe, I believe. And we have a body of very old legends, myths, called the Mabinogi, which are part of the whole body of Celtic mythology. And these are the, the kind of the Welsh branches. They're actually called the four branches of the Mabinogi, which are hero tales, really and they deal with the relationship between people and their leaders and the other world and um, a spiritual reality which was much closer to people's awareness in those days than it is tends to be now and um, the kind of story cycles which date from in written form they date from the 12th century mid 12th century and there are some earlier poems from about the 6th century onwards which exist in written form as well that the um, the earliest written versions were fragments, but the kind of more complete versions date from about the same time, about you know any, anywhere between the 10th and the 12th century. And some of them are um, kind of sagas, poems of, of praise to the great leaders, the war heroes. And they perpetuate, because Wales was a tribal country and there was constant warring between tribes, so it was in their interest to try and maintain the identity of you know, their, their sense of history, their sense of tribal history came through the work of the poets who were also the storytellers. And, um, and they, they sort of kept their, their roots and their history alive by telling these sagas, reciting these sagas, or singing the sagas, which I think is probably what they did to the accompaniment of a harp and other instruments. And some of the early poems are also kind of mystical poems. There's a body of... Um, poems of unknown origin that are attributed to various poets but actually they don't know who you know where they came from which are is older material and is um i don't know sort of sp spiritual cosmic verse of a sort about the elements and the origins of things and about a mystical reality do you know any of these pieces i've worked with some of them i did um, a, a performance piece about taliesin well, part of the story is about Taliesin, who is one of these poets. Um, Taliesin was a 6th century poet who wrote these um, war sagas, but a lot of this mystical poetry is attributed to him, although there's no evidence that he wrote it. And I have worked with some of the texts from some of those old verses. Do you have a line or two you can do in Welsh? Whether I can remember it right now or not, I don't know. Um, um, so this is a piece of um, verse that Taliesin... The story is that Taliesin is discovered. He's, a, he's cast out on the waters as an infant, and he's discovered by a king's son. He's in a, a, a black bag of some sort, kind of leather bag, and when the bag is opened, this infant appears with a shining, shining brow, and um, the person who finds him, the king's son, calls him Taliesin, which means shining brow. And, and the little infant then proceeds to say who he is, and this is what he says. Prevart y Fredyn o'i fi i elfyn, Ma fi a fym naw mis heiach, Angroth gerid wen awrach. And loosely, that little bit you did. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's a piece that I put together with bits of the old text and some of it translated and it means um, wait a minute elfin. I am the chief bard of Elfin means I have been in the womb of Keridwen the, the witch for nine months and he proceeds to say where he, where he comes from that he comes from the land of the summer stars and various other things about his origins that he was made from the ninefold wave and I can't remember the details now because I haven't got it at the tip of my tongue when you're telling this story do you feel a connection with your ancestors? well increasingly I'm, I'm finding my way into the material that really moves me most and, and it seems to be this very old mythological stuff and I don't know what the connections are you know it's, it's a mysterious progress, process and um, it's something that interests me very much at the moment and it links in with the poetry of the age and with the landscape and with the environment that I live in and the history, the actual historical facts of what was going on in Wales at that time and the myths and the interesting, I mean for instance at the moment I'm interested in following up a story from the 12th century and at that particular time in one of the courts of Wales in the 12th century is exactly when these legends were written and we don't know who wrote them but it would have been in one of the courts of, of the time so I think the, the knowledge and the familiarity that the people of that time had with the legends is somehow very closely um, bound up with my own interest in, in the historical character and who then became a, almost a mythic fig figure in, in Welsh history anyway so the, the whole everything seems to tie up together somehow and yes, it is a. I mean, it's not my immediate ancestors, but it's something about. It's something about the root of the language, I think, because that's my thread back. It's the thread of language that goes back through the through the poetry, through the stories, into historical situations and into the physical environment, the mountains and the valleys and the places which feature in the stories. Wales is a small country. This body of legend relates to places that I know, features of the land that I know. And even if I don't know them intimately myself, I know where they are. And I know where they are in relation to other places. And it's very immediate. It's very powerful and very immediate. Let's have an example. Okay, well, the example is um, related to the one that I've just been talking about. I live in a beautiful river valley called the Towie Valley in South Wales. And I live kind of quite far up the valley where the river becomes narrow. And from the house where I live, which is right at the bottom of the river valley, and there's a, a hill on the other side which I can walk up and I did this not so very long ago and you walk up this hill you come to a flat kind of moorland and if you walk across the moor it brings you down into another valley this is about eight miles away and in the other valley is the place where the 12th century princess that I'm interested in at the moment lived and she and her husband lived as um, fugitives from the Normans in the forests of that valley it was densely forested and they lived there in hiding for a very long time and um, they held their court there you know and it was I mean she was a courtly princess she was the daughter of the high king of Gwyneth of North Wales who was a very strong ruler and his age the age of his rule was a kind of golden age of Welsh literature it was um, a crucible for poetry and other arts of Wales including political arts and so that's, that was the environment that she grew up in. And then she, as a, as a grown woman, a married woman with her family, lived in this court in the forest. And it's 
perfectly reasonable to suppose that the kind of cultural activities that she was used to would have continued in that place. And it's across the hill from where I live, across the moor. And when I went on this walk to look for this place a couple of weeks ago, from halfway across the moor, where I imagine that she herself would have walked, if I look to the south, about 20 miles to the south, I can see a high escarpment in the landscape, which is a very notable um, feature. And I know that at the foot of that escarpment is a particular lake, which features in what is probably the best known of all the Welsh folk legends, a very powerful story about the woman who comes up out of the lake. And that story links into a historical family history of the physicians of Mudvai who were supposedly descended from this woman who appeared from the lake. And one of the physicians of Mudvai became the court physician to the son of the princess that I've been talking about, who was the, a big, powerful lord in that part of South Wales. And so the whole thing seems to link up, the landscape and the, the history and these ancient myths which she would have known about may even have written about and I don't know what it's all about you know it's just it just grabs me and I'm just following it and finding things that link up it links up with the flowers the um, the physical environment the, the landscape and a lot of issues that we're concerned about today about how we protect the countryside the land the earth itself and how we can actually learn to you to live more sustainably within the areas that we live in which is also related to how we relate to the, the trees, the flowers, the plants, the medicines, all these issues. And, you know, this is also part of the story because her, her sons, the physicians of Mudvai, who were actual historical people, were herbalists. And their, um, their medicinal teachings were famous, not just throughout Wales, but further afield than that. So it all feels like just one very rich web. And uh, I'm very excited by it. I'm not sure what it's leading to, but it's going somewhere. How do you connect to these stories? Are there people, other storytellers you go to for sources? Uh, is it mostly scholarly work? You're reading books, other people have written about these stories, and then you're finding the landscapes yourself? Or are there already people who have done this work of connecting the stories to the landscape? Um, no, not that I know of specifically. I think that's something that I've become interested in through my own kind of awakening awareness of the landscape myself and um, having lived in the country over the last 10 years or so so it's part of my own development I think my own growth you know and my own connection to the earth um, as far as where I get the stories from oh, where do I get them from I mean some of them are well known so you know I know of the existence of the story before I actually know and dig into it I hear different people perhaps telling different aspects of it some of the stories are stories that are used in all manner of ways. They may become pantomime stories or they may be made into serious theatre or they may exist in numerous collections of folk stories in which they are told in many, many different ways, you know, sometimes in a very light and superficial kind of way and sometimes in a more profound way. So if the story interests me or if there's something that links me to it, sometimes that's going to the place. Um, learning something about the actual physical place. It may be because I hear somebody else allude to the story in a way that interests me or work with the story perhaps in an interesting way. mixture of things. Initially, a lot of the stories that I told were stories that I heard other people tell. 
hear them from other storytellers and you kind of get familiar with them on the circuit and then for whatever reason <laughs> I take it on myself. I've also often been asked to tell stories in um, particular places, you know, and I like to look into the stories of the area so I, I look for local material as much as I can do. I had a wonderful job about three or four years ago which was part of um, a labyrinth theatre project, a sensory theatre project up in the valley where my mother came from, which is my kind of roots country. And I had the, the job of looking for local stories and talking to local people and finding out things about that particular place, which is somewhere that's very close to my heart. And it was an extraordinary experience because in that particular valley there are layers and layers of history, um, you know, from the Ice Age and the giants. There are stories about giants. There are places where you can see the giant's footprints or where the giant has, you know, dropped a shovel full of earth and made a mountain or whatever the story is about. And um, and then you have the Bronze Age people who came and built their hut circles up on the, the mountain tops, on the hilltops, above the forests. And then you have the Romans who came and built roads, some of which you can still detect and had their camps up there and fought battles and there are tales there are more recent folk tales about people seeing the Romans I know of two stories of people supposedly seeing Roman legions marching or hearing them march and um, and then you have a whole gamut of people from English history who came up the Conway Valley trying to invade Wales and they got as far as a certain point in the valley and then they couldn't go any further because in front of you there's just a wall of mountain and that went on for many hundreds of years so it, it felt as if everybody had been up through that particular area you know and this was just layers and layers it was like digging into the soil and finding layer on top of layer of material of various kinds um, from the very very old mythic stuff up to legend folk legend um, more recent anecdotal material and things that are, to me are quite mythic but they were actually stories that the local people would identify with particular people there was an oak tree a particular point like a, a crossroads where there was a hollow oak tree and um, there was a story about this old woman who supposedly lived in this oak tree and I went to look at the oak tree and there's no way that anybody could have lived in it but you know that was a story there was a similar story several hundred years earlier about a similar a similar situation about this an old woman who lived in that same place and was moved on to Denby where there are lots of witches so maybe she became a witch but it's layers layers of material does Wales did Wales go through the whole burning witches thing Yes, but not to the same degree. I think the Welsh must have liked their witches because there were very few witches burnt in Wales. There are lots of stories about witches um, and this particular town, Denby, seemed to be very full of witches. <laughs> and there are stories about um, witching wells, you know, places where you could um, hex somebody by sticking pins in an image and dropping it into the well. And There are lots of those stories and old women who were known to be witches or thought to be witches and persecuted in a in a kind of social way ostracized or treated you know cruelly but the actual burning of witches didn't really take on in wales i think there was a, i can't remember the number six comes into my mind but i'm not sure if that's true 
but very small in comparison with um, other parts of Britain, particularly Scotland. In, in English-speaking countries, there are certain words that we use, like um, I think I'm thinking of storytelling right now, that might mean a slightly different thing in a different place. Uh, and I was thinking, is there any difference in how the Welsh think about storytelling and how they view storytelling than how we view storytelling in the United States? I mean, maybe you don't want to expose the United States to answer that question, but but how do you think the Welsh idea or the ideal of storytelling is different? I think there's a huge difference. I don't really know anything about storytelling in, in the United States, um, except that in the last week I've had a chance to hear Snippets, not an awful lot, but snippets of the um, Giving Voice project at the Smithsonian, which is um, African-American telling. And I think it's very different because that tradition is very um, vigorous and very quite raw, really. I think the, the material that people are working with is very, very close to their own experience a lot of the time. And that's very different because our stories are old. The traditional storytelling in Wales... It's not a living tradition, really. And historically, I'm not quite sure what it was historically, because Wales is a bardic, has a bardic tradition. So in the, you know, in the, in the distant past, we had these um, long years of, of bards composing poetry, which was were stories in a way, but it, they were these, um, yeah, bardic epics, and. And that kind of form went on for a long time. And in more recent... And then there were all the folk tales, which would have been passed around by traveling people, I suppose, minstrels and, and wanderers and travelers and gypsies, and people would take these stories around from place to place. And people would tell the stories in their own communities. But that's died down, I think. You know, some time ago, that sense of telling traditional stories which I think is still alive in Ireland to some degree and is still alive in Scotland, but I don't think that's really alive in Wales. But what you do have is a very strong natural capacity for people to recount experiences and anecdotes and to entertain, you know, through telling. I mean, stories about people that you know, things that have happened in the community, um, things that, that you remember from your past, that stories that you heard about other people, very much depending on people knowing knowing the local society and knowing who's who and what's what and and those kind of things and you'll get for instance you know if there's a, some kind of society or organization that's having a dinner an annual dinner or some celebratory dinner then they will invite a guest speaker and that guest speaker will be a natural born storyteller they will break off into anecdotes about this and that and have everybody laughing at things that they're familiar with from their knowledge of the neighborhood but it's not storytelling in the way that I tell stories, for instance, of, you know, traditional tales passed on material in that way. So it's a relatively small number of people now who are going out and telling stories in that way. I think maybe because the, you know, I think people haven't thought about it. They haven't actually realized that it's something that they could do. And I think it'll latch on the more people start to hear it and hear stories being told then I, I think and I hope that Welsh people particularly will, will start to kind of take on the telling of the stories because there is a huge body, huge wealth of story material in Wales, both the old mythic material and legends and folk tales. There's some pretty wild, scary stories in Wales, but you've been to some pretty, pretty outrageous concerts of scary storytelling in Wales. I think the myths are scary, 
because they're so potent, you know. Um, I mean, not scary in the way that ghost stories or those kind of things. I mean, there are there are legends, there are folk tales and legends that you know you can find scary stories if you want for kind of scary occasions. But the ones that I I tend to gravitate towards are the older material, which are quite mysterious and they're scary in a different way. <laughs> they may be more profoundly scary because they're about um, beings that have you know powers that are um, not to be messed around with. Many times you're telling a story and you have to choose, you're, you're doing a telling, many times you're doing a telling, and you have to decide if it's going to be an English telling or it's going to be a Welsh telling. How do you make that decision? And is it pre-decided most of the time by the gig, the nature of the gig, it's going to be in Welsh, it's going to be in, or are you doing bilingual storytelling a fair amount? With the kids, I'm guessing you're, you're doing bilingual or, or Welsh telling for the most part. Um, but with adults, is, how does that usually work? Well, it varies a lot. It depends on which part of the country I'm in. It depends on the venue, whether it's um, you know, an arts centre or a community event, for instance. You, yeah, you get a different balance of um, Welsh speakers or non-Welsh speakers, depending on kind of where you put yourself. In Wales, mostly I tend to use a fair amount of the Welsh language, I always translate as I'm going along, unless it's specifically a Welsh context, which it may be, can be. Um, sometimes I know that the audience is Welsh-speaking and, you know, the people who've booked me, are, it's a Welsh organization or whatever. But apart from those situations, I always translate the material. But sometimes I will tell the story in Welsh and translate into English as I go along, even if I know that maybe 50% or more of the audience are not really Welsh-speaking because a lot of people come to live in Wales. Either they are from, either they've grown up in the area and perhaps their family speaks Welsh, they don't speak Welsh themselves, but actually they can understand quite a lot of it. It's in their blood and it's also in their memory and in their background. Um, so there are those people who will understand quite a lot of what I say in Welsh. And then you have a lot of people who come into Wales to live, non-Welsh speakers, who try to learn Welsh. And again, you know, they, they take it to a greater or lesser degree, but they can understand a lot more than they think they can. And um, so I kind of give them the chance, really, to, to hear it, you know, and to follow it. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll vary the program. Like some things I'll just tell them in English or else I'll, I'll bring in more English and less, less Welsh as the evening goes on and people get tired <laughs> just to kind of, you know, so that it's not a challenge for people. With children, actually, they can... A lot of the schools are, are Welsh, Welsh language schools. So even though the children are English children from English families, they get a Welsh education. And they can be quite reluctant to say that they know Welsh. There are all sorts of very complex issues in there. But I know that if in a certain area, if they're going to the local school, then they know Welsh. So they can understand if I tell them a story in Welsh. It's not usually a difficult decision. I can tell from the audience how much Welsh they can take, you know, and how much they can uh, enjoy. Speak a few lines, you can see the, the puzzled looks on some faces. Or the, the curiosity, perhaps. Um, yes, but usually it's sort of obvious, you know, from the nature of the venue and the, the kind of nature of the crowd, you can sort of tell. And I check it out anyway, I ask people how many people speak Welsh.
Yes, indeed. This is Baba Jamal Karam, and you're listening to the art of storytelling with Brother Wolf, the only storytelling place on the internet where you can hear the true facts, the true feeling about storytelling. Here in the United States, one of the branding issues of storytelling is that many people view storytelling as something that happens with a librarian, with a book, in front of a group of children, or it happens as bedtime stories, where you read a book to a child, or it happens in a school, and it's not something that adults are supposed to be doing. And I'm curious what what happens in Wales. Is, is your experience of the brand, of the of the response of the word storytelling the same as it is here in the States. Yes, and I think more so in the Welsh-speaking community because they're less familiar with people storytelling to adults. I think um, people in kind of more arts-conscious communities, more sophisticated areas perhaps, um, and perhaps English-speaking people as well who are more familiar with um, storytelling as being something, you know, a new art form for, for adults. That's how it kind of appears now. But if you go into more conventional social contexts in a small town or in other parts of um, the country, and particularly amongst the Welsh-speaking community, they don't think of it as something for adults. And very often people don't realize that I'm actually going to tell the story. They think I'm going to read it. Um, and they'll say, well, what story are you, are you going to read? <laughs> and I have to explain that, well, first of all, I don't know necessarily a month in advance what story I'm going to work with and I don't necessarily want to tell them what story it is either if, if it's a school because I want them to get the story fresh I don't want them to you know try and investigate the story or work with it beforehand but they think that I'm going to read it and they it's difficult for people to grasp that I'm actually going to tell the story and that it's a different thing altogether and adults they come along with their children you know and then they say with a, a bit bashfully oh well I quite enjoyed that myself you know yeah, I think they think they need an excuse. They need to have a child in attendance so that they can legitimately listen to the story. What is the Welsh word for storyteller? That's a good question. There, isn't, there sort of isn't one, really. There's a, in Welsh, we have a, a masculine and a feminine ending, you know, like actor and actress, for instance. And um, the Welsh word for a storyteller is normally storiwr, which is a, a male ending. And... They've got me down here on the program as a storyur, which I object to because I'm not a man. But the feminine of that is is like saying a story wife, which I don't particularly like either because it feels a little bit clumsy and um, doesn't sit very comfortably. But there's an ancient word, that, which is the, the Bardic word, which is kavarwith, and that really means a storyteller. It means the kind of um, the Bardic storyteller. How do you spell that? C-Y-F-A-R-W-Y-D-D. And what it actually means is the presenter, the one who is presenting the material. But it's an old word. that It's, it's not in common currency. And, I mean, educated people would know what it meant, but everybody wouldn't necessarily know what that was. But sometimes it gets revived. I've used it occasionally, but not all the time. So there's, there's no satisfactory word for me. I just, you know, I feel like I want to invent another one. 
And the Welsh word for um, for a story or a legend, I mean, we say story, which is a story, and story or is a storyteller, but there's a better word, which is chwedlai, and chwedlai is a legend, so chwedleiwr or chwedleiw could be a storyteller. I guess I really want to hear one more example of Welsh poetry, some other little story in Welsh. Is that possible? Yeah. How long do you want? How long do I want? Well, I don't know any other two-minute ones, but I... Well, just tell a piece of one if you want, or whatever yeah. you... Yn ymwneud y pentref, le dwi'n byw, mae'n afwthyn bach. Ac yn y bwthyn bach hwn, mae Megan Morgan yn byw. Ac os digwydd i chi edrych allan o diol i'ch cyrtans les a'r noson pa mae'r lleiad yn llawn, efella gwelwch chi Megan Morgan yn dod allan o'i bwthyn bach. Siol fawr lan yn ddi wedi lapio amdani, a ffon yn ei llaw. Ac i fyny â hi, i fyny'r llwybu'r creigiog sydd yn arwain drwy'r goedwig at y rhos. Ar yna chi lled i gysur anghysbell ydy'r rhos. Megan Morgan lives in the little cottage at the end of the village where I live. And if you should look out from behind your lace curtains on a moonlit night, on a night of full moon, you will see Megan Morgan coming out of her little cottage, a black woolen shawl wrapped around her, and an oaken stick in her hand, and she will go up the rocky path through the trees until she comes to the moor, and the moor is a cheerless place, dim cysgod o unrhyw fath, o ddiwrth gwyntoedd mawr yr hydref, rhew ac oer ni y gaea, glaw y gwanwyn a hael llosg tanbaid yr haf, dim cysgod o unrhyw fath, heb law am ambell i goeden fechan, dreinen fechan, yn glynu yn y tir bas ar y rhos. There is no shelter on the moor, no shelter of any sort, from the high winds of autumn, the ice and snow of winter, the rains of spring and the blasting heat of summer, no shelter except for the occasional little thorn tree clinging to the shallow soil on the surface of the rocks. On ma megan morgan an cami allan ar draws y rhos, nes bod hi'n dod at un o'r coed bach ma, a wedyn mae hi'n tynnu y siol fawr lan am ddi o ddi amdani ac yn ei lapio hi o gwmpas y goedan fechan. Ac yna, yngol ar lleiad llawn, mae Megan Morgan yn dawnsio. She walks out across the moor until she comes to one of these little trees, and then taking her great woolen shawl, she wraps the shawl around the little tree for a few moments while she dances in the light of the full moon. A pa mae Megan Morgan yn dawnsio, tydi hi ddim yn hen wreigan bellach, ond yn ferch ifanc ystwyth, a'i chefn yn symud fel bedwen ifanc, a'i breichia, a'i choesa, fel dŵr yn ant yn llifoi lawr ochr y bryn. And when she dances, Megan Morgan is no longer an old woman, but a supple young girl. Her back moves like a young birch tree, and her arms and her legs like the water of the stream flowing down the hillside. That is beautiful. So if people wanted to contact you, they could go to your website. So what is your website? My website is www.bodyandvoice.co.uk And what sort of um, work do you traditionally do as a storyteller? Um, what I really enjoy doing is um, performance performance work, really, where I can um, get my teeth into preparing a piece and working with different aspects of it, both the um, the melodic forms of it, song and textual material and 
freer storytelling and mix these things together and create a piece that is satisfying to me. That's what I like to do. So you like the Welsh-English mixed pieces? Yeah, I like to use both languages. I like to move between the two, and I like to move between song and speech. I've, I've had a few interviews on mixing song and storytelling. I would like to remind my listeners that I have CD for sale at www.ericwolf.org. If you go to the right on the website, you'll see a little CD store. You can go in there, and the CD is called Peace Tales for Educators, Volume 1. It has um, a whole bunch of Aesop fables. And if you're a beginning storyteller and you want to have a bunch of short, swift stories, you can pull out of a hat and most notice this is a great resource for you. All the stories relate to Aesop. I know there's over 700 stories to choose from, and I chose all the stories that relate to slavery and power and freedom. Thank you for coming on the show. Do you have any last words for the international storytelling community? Yes, just keep telling stories. I think it's endless resource of um, nourishment for everybody, for the tellers and for the listeners and uh, for the community and for the earth. Yeah, I love this idea of finding the stories that relate to a place. And I think I'm going to try to find other people who are trying to do this. And it's a very exciting idea. One of the things that excites me about some of the storytelling that goes on in... Um, when I first heard of Australian native storytelling, of the Bushmen, they would, they would tell the story... They would tell the story to their youth. So the story goes, you know, the guy walks for four miles and he comes to the watering hole and there's the alligator and he takes a right turn and he walks three miles and there's this rock and the rock looks like this shape and, and the rock talks in his voice. And so when the kid's 14 years old, it's time for his coming of age ceremony, the kid's like, okay, what do I do? And they say, remember that story about the guy who walks to the alligator? And they're like, yeah, well, just follow the story. Good luck. And I, I just love that idea of a story that belongs so much to a place. And I think it's very exciting with the journey you're going on. I think we have fragments of the old creation stories in the Welsh mythology, just fragments. And, um, yeah, I, I just like to stitch them together and, you know, find the bits and see how the patchwork grows, really. And they are potent. They're they're. They're fragments that have lasted for such a long, long time, and when you come across them within another story, somehow you can you can feel that they come from a a deeper place or a beyond place. They're often a bit weird as well, completely wacky. They have well, wacky is not the right word. They're um, yeah. There's a sort of strangeness about them. They don't fit into our own our kind of frame of reference. Somehow they're from another dimension of of um, knowing. I think because we don't we don't have our own creation mythology I think what we have is kind of a few steps further on from that and um, but it's interesting to, to just feel your way to what might have been there before sometimes it feels like that every generation goes through this grinder this meat grinder of history and every generation has to in some way reinvent itself and stand on its own feet and that's that's true in storytelling as it is in everything else thank you so much for coming on the show thank you it's been a pleasure this guest has written a post to the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com this post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website plus other additional information about our discussion 
If you want to respond to the show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. 